welcome back to the show. This is Brett and you are listening to Holistic Health Masterclass podcast. Um, so you will probably notice that I haven't released an episode for the last three or four weeks. Um, I actually haven't done much over the last three or four weeks. Uh, it's been quite a time of reflection, I will just say. And um, I'm probably going to uh, record a separate podcast, a solo podcast, which will be very short, just kind of explaining a couple of insights and um, things that I've gleaned from just taking a bit of a step back over the last uh, three or four weeks. Um, I think that, you know, in in many instances, we focus so much attention outward and we project and project and project and speak and talk all the time that we don't really pay attention to what's coming back. And of course, with everything that's going on in the world right now, um, there's just so much information coming at you and there's so much dialogue and conversations going on that um, taking a step back and taking a bit of a time out has actually been quite good. Uh, so anyway, I'll record another podcast on that and um, maybe just share my insights there. Um, on to today's podcast, uh, a podcast that I've actually been working on for probably about two or three months and um, our schedules just didn't line up. Um, to be to be perfectly honest, I think uh, the first time I actually had Alison booked in, um, I was a little bit nervous to have her because I didn't quite understand what she was talking about. And so I had to go and do a little bit more reading, a little bit more digging to prepare properly for uh, this podcast interview. Um you know, I would encourage you just to go and flick through the show notes, have a quick skim through. You'll see exactly what we're talking about. Um, this is a very, very out there kind of episode, but I feel, as you will hear us um, echo many times on this show, it's important for us to look at this with open eyes, moving forward uh, into this from a place of love, uh, from a place of peace, from a place of uh, that is not fear driven right? Because a lot of the stuff that's going on, it doesn't seem to make any sense. Okay. And as I've said before on the show, you can go back and listen to the end game. You can listen to the sovereignty podcast. You can listen to, you know, many other podcasts here. My focus, yes, we're talking about pandemic. Yes, we're talking about virus and all that other stuff. But I've always been concerned with what's coming further down the road, right? And some of the stuff is actually not that far down the road. Some of it's actually happening right now. And so the overarching theme that we're talking about on today's show is really the fourth industrial revolution and technocracy. All right. And there's a lot of um, other terms that kind of um, fall underneath that. Uh, you know, we start, I kind of opened this episode up by talking about some definitions, right? So what, what does this stuff mean? What is technocracy? What is transhumanism? What is the internet of things, the internet of bodies, just so that we all kind of get our bearings and we understand what we're actually talking about here before we get into the implications, right? So how, how, why, why do they want to um, gather all of our data? Why is contact tracing? Why is tracking such an issue? Uh, how's our data going to be used? Um, what are the implications of all of that, right? So when you start getting into things like social credit scoring, um, you know, compliance uh, scoring, rewards, uh, privileges, all that sort of stuff, um, this stuff is is coming down the pipeline, believe it or not. It is coming down the pipeline. Um, and again, I would just encourage you to listen to this podcast with an open mind, first of all. And um, some of the stuff might be very difficult to wrap your head around, especially if you've never heard of this for the first time. I know that many of you who are regular listeners to the show will really appreciate this because I know that you are dialed into this sort of stuff. Um, I would encourage you to listen all the way to the end because I would say the last third of this, um, at least from my perspective, really gave me a lot of hope. 
right? Because I think that it's very easy for us to get wrapped up in fear, even the activists in us, even the, you know, um, people that have the best of intentions. I find that um, as we go further down this road, most of us or a lot of us are acting from a place of fear because we're genuinely worried about the future. And um, again, I'll record a separate podcast on that um, and share, ex expand on that. But um, I think that the, the last third of this episode um, made me feel really, really good because the, the way that we're going to be moving through this and the way for us to get through this and ultimately work our way to a better place is going to be with the power of community, uh, the power of love and um, ultimately reconnecting with um, spirit and the natural world. So uh, I leave that um, as a message of hope and some positive thoughts um, as we uh, head into this episode. So um, please listen to this with an open mind. Share this with your friends, your family, your community. And uh, please welcome to the show, Alison McDowell. All right. Hey, Allison, welcome so, so much to the show. This is going to be so awesome. I'm delighted to have you here after months of planning and back and forth. How are you today? I'm, I'm well, thanks. How are you? I'm doing good. Um, I have so many questions for you. And uh, as I said to you off air, I think that um, I just want to try and rein us in a little bit today and keep us on some sort of lane because um, the stuff that we're going to talk about gets a little bit out there, gets a little bit crazy. But I think that what everyone should realize is that this is not a lot of the stuff is not happening in the future. It's actually happening right now. And so this is why I wanted to have this conversation with you. Um, and I'll just sort of preamble a little bit here um, before I hand the mic over to you. You know, a lot of people, when we think about the pandemic and what's going on right now, um, you know, a lot of people are still very much fixated on the on the virus, on the contagion, on getting it under control, on getting the cases down, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and what myself and people like you have been looking at um, since the beginning is sort of, well, what's actually going on in the background? Like, there's things that just don't seem to add up. There's decisions that are being made. There's policies that are being put in place. There's um, solutions in air quotes that just seem to be popping up out of nowhere. Um, you know, one example would be all of a sudden we have a vaccine that magically appeared after a year. We've got these biometric IDs that they're talking about, which all of a sudden just came out of nowhere. Again, air quotes. Um, and I think that what the, the thing that I love about the work that you do is that you have really, I think you're one of the few people on the planet that has actually uncovered like, you know, 50 steps ahead of, of uh, looking into the future, right? To see what's actually going on behind the scene. So um, yeah, welcome again to the show. If you were to try and encapsulate what you do, how would you explain to people in like an elevator pitch? Like, what do you research? What, you know, what do you do? Uh, <clears throat> well, just by way of context. So I'm, I'm based in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania in the US. And I sort of characterize myself as a, as a mom and an independent researcher who actually came into all of this through um, researching public education and school closures. So, so people in the space come from a lot of different backgrounds and mine is probably non-traditional and it wasn't actually founded in health or wellness, but the playbook that they have is very similar across. So if you understand deeply how it applies to managing people as data in education, then you can apply that same structure to what we see happening in the healthcare space. Um, 
And my, my background is actually in art history and historic preservation. So my training is sort of um, looking at primary source materials and then um, sort of extrapolating and putting together imagery of sort of a bigger picture. It's a, it's a syn synthesis really, which I think is something that is the kind of thing they're trying to actually um, move out of the education system. They would prefer us to have very atomized knowledge and bits and pieces, but the inability to actually um, construct the bigger picture and to, to project and imagine what the ethical implications are for the things that we're seeing into the future. They want everybody just to stay narrow and focused and in their lane. So I kind of break that down and my, my blog, I started out primarily as researching education and then it moved into managing the poor because our city is a very poor city. So the nonprofit industrial complex of managing the poor as data, not just children. And then clearly the past year has been expanded to include um, biological processes, right? And what's advancing with um, uh, innovations that they, they frame, but like the, the coming advent of synthetic biology and genetic engineering and biotech, not simply as something to manage um, people who have serious health conditions, but really as a global finance opportunity. And so that is my other situation is understanding um, the role of data and surveillance within the context of global markets. Um, mm -hmm. global financial markets. So that's sort of my, my framing is I map this landscape. That's the thing. When I, I got my master's in cultural landscape and historic preservation, I never knew that the landscape that I was going to map was um, a landscape of like automated transhumanism. <laughs> you know, yeah. I, I did not think that's where it was going, but that's sort of what I do. And, and I quilt, like this is my other piece. I haven't done it as much lately, but I, I, I do very sort of scrappy quilts. And so that's how I sort of think I make these maps that put pieces together just the way I make quilts and I put these pieces together. And then once you sort of step back, you know, you can see the overall yeah. scheme. Yeah. And um, am I correct in saying that you're also involved with food somehow? Because, um, you know, th there is a holistic side to you as well, if I'm not mistaken, right? Well, I, I work um, at a public garden, an urban public garden, and I have the benefit of its Lenape land and being, it's a post-industrial area. So we're surrounded by refineries and everything. And so, um, but I think energetically, there's a very special aspect to the land. We're at the, the on a, a sand dune that goes down from, from the Piedmont to the coastal plain of New Jersey. And um, yeah, part of my education experience of really understanding um, my research focus, which is this social impact investing and, and data analytics um, emerged from my, I, I had a mentor who taught me about this, but who was also involved in, um, uh, he went out with the veterans to Standing Rock. And so part of my clicking of what this actually all was, was going from like a well-meaning parent to understood things at a very, like the NPR listening level mm -hmm. to understanding it at a more structural level was to actually like, he was there the day of the, the, the Standing Rock was raided and to see Regina Brave, who was, um, you know, a Lakota Navy veteran standing for her treaty rights, right? As these MRAPs, these militarized MRAPs came down the hill for this, you know, indigenous grandmother who was fighting for her legal rights around her land. So to me, that was the space that it crystallized in is that what we're dealing with is sort of the legacy of 
a system, as Stephen Newcomb talks about, um, of domination, a doctrine of domination um, that is a colonizing, that, that both Canada, all of Turtle Island really, you know, yeah. are, are living the, the repercussions of that. So that's the other layer is, is um, how does one relate as we fight for natural life against synthetic biology to stand in that history and try to heal that piece as we move forward? Yeah. Well, and I think we'll we'll probably circle back to a bit of that a little bit later on in our talk today. Um, so, uh, you know, a couple of other things that I'll just throw out there um, that we're and longtime listeners to the show, you would have heard me speak about this before. Uh, things like the fourth industrial revolution, um, like the technocracy and the tech takeover um, by these big tech companies. Uh, the World Economic Forum agenda and that sort of stuff. So I'm just going to sort of throw that out there for our listeners um, and people watching this broadcast, um, just just so you know that there's a rough framing around all of that. And we're going to kind of unpack some of that uh, today. So um, I wanted to just start off ground zero and let's just get some fundamentals um, out the way for people who are maybe not familiar with some of these terms. I think um, let's just start off with a simple one. Um, how would you define technocracy? Like what is technocracy to you? Um, so I think, uh, well, technocracy, Patrick Wood is someone who's done a lot of historical research about it. I mean, at a fundamental level, it's about an industrially engineered um, society. And this, these ideas go back to Thorsten Veblen back in the 1890s and uh, were sort of lifted up in the 1930s in the United States out of the Columbia University School of Industrial Engineering. So looking at life on planet Earth as an industrial problem <laughs> to be managed for efficiency. And in Philadelphia, um, Friedrich Taylor, like Taylorism, this idea of social efficiency, um, automation, assembly lines, um, you know, how does one handle life in the most efficient way possible for productivity for sort of profitable gain? Um, and now we're looking at the extension of this into um, really Microsoft and many of these powerful interests really using bioinformatics and genomics to put us in a planetary computer, like a digital yeah, simulation. Yeah. Um, so it's that extension. I would say, you know, the, the challenging thing with technocracy is that a lot of people have different framings for what's under what's going on. And technocracy is one. Some people say communitarianism. Some people say fascism. Some people say communism or social. Like there's yeah, everybody yeah. has the slice. And so I would say the, the piece that resonates with me is John Trudell talking about a predator energy. Like there's this dominating force that is increasingly mechanical, a mechanized force of, of channeling a natural, like sort of the beautiful chaos of natural life into a more regimented systematic process, which again, comes out of the late 19th century social engineering, but through cybernetics and then forward. And then of course, um, just to add on to that, we, we would be looking at sort of now micromanaging a lot of that data using technology, right? So um, if we go back, you know, maybe 40 or 50 years, we didn't have things like AI, or, you know, artificial intelligence. We, we didn't have the technology and the quantum computing power and all of this other stuff. Um, and we also didn't actually have the data, right? So we'll talk a little bit about that, um, you know, because data is really central to our discussion today. So actually having the data and then having the 
the the computation power and the tracking ability to actually use that data now and micro funnel it if you want in down different channels in different pathways right so um and of course to do all of this stuff we um you know let's just segue into the next piece which is um i would love to know what a blockchain actually is you know because i know you talk a lot about blockchains and um you know we look at uh, the crypto market right now so cryptocurrencies are huge and i think you know um a lot of people will understand that cryptocurrency is all managed on a blockchain, but no one really knows what a blockchain actually is. Um, so maybe you can help us out with that. Right. Um, so in its essence, blockchain technology is a digital ledger system. So if you understand like the history of accounting, right, yeah. and developments in accounting that, like I say, that the, the maritime trading uh, rode on Europe's adoption of double entry bookkeeping, right, because you would you would track um, costs and income across time and space. And that was needed to do this global trade, a lot of which was also based on trade of enslaved people, right, enslaved Africans and that sort of thing. So mm. The, the accounting system has this deep history. So then the next level of accounting is to be able to track assets into virtual worlds, really. Okay. Um, and I think people who might be familiar with gaming platforms, which I'm not a deep gamer, but like understanding um, digital items that you would might acquire either through point systems or acquisition systems in digital economies, Blockchain is something that is used to track a digital asset. And so it's not simply just um, currency, the way we might understand crypto, but it is actually tracking all sorts of assets. And these assets could also be um, like a right or a privilege that would be turned into a token. Okay. So, so, so the, the difference of this kind of ledger, one is tracks things digitally. The second is that is, this is what everyone says is so wonderful. It's decentralized, right? So mm -hmm. it's supposedly unhackable um, because the data is stored in many different places and you can't crack them all at the same time. Realistically, there are often side chains and bits and pieces and wallets that can be hacked. So in and of itself, it's not completely accurate to say it's unhackable, but it's this idea of a permanent record. Your permanent record, it's going on your permanent record. Um, the other piece is, is that that data is locked in place is the permanency through cryptography. So that is what the Bitcoin comes in is that um, in order to lock in data into the blockchain, there are these cryptographic puzzles that computers compete to, to do. And, and back in the early days, which were, you know, in 2008-ish, when in the aftermath of the last global financial crash, like this mm. just shows up on the scene, this anonymous Santoshi Nakamoto shows up, you know, whatever that is, right? Yeah. And, um, and people would like set up computers in their garages and mine crypto for money. Well, now with the quantum computing, like that playing field is gone. That phase of like DIY crypto mining in your, you know, garage is yeah. over. It's, it's a very intensive process, a lot of which is actually based in China. Um, you know, there's a lot of stuff based in like hydro. There, there's a, It's very energy intensive. Um, yeah. yeah, I've heard that. So, so there's that piece. It's digital, it's decentralized, it's cryptographic, um, and it's assets. And the, it's assets far beyond um, simply currency. It is these rights and privileges because what's going to happen, and maybe we'll talk about that in a bit, is this idea of a spatial web is that your interactions with smart um, systems, which would be smart 
appliances, smart cars, smart streetlights, smart environments will be tracked then on blockchain at this very, very granular level data. So you might yeah, have yeah. something big like a birth certificate on blockchain, but it also might be like, oh, I, you know, I paid for my on-street parking on this day at this time for this many hours. So it could be something as big as a birth certificate or as small as like how long you parked on the street downtown. And so 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 these these would essentially then um be considered assets, right? So these are like mini mini assets, like little data sets. Um yeah. and of course now when you start you can imagine as we start tracking all of the stuff um, once you start putting it together, you now have the ability to track large swaths of um, group-based or population-based data as well as the the individual, right? But um, we're going to come back to something a little bit later because I think a lot of this ties into, um, you know, social credit scoring, right? So basically, you know, based on your behavior, and I know that this is, is something we're going to spend a good bit of time on, based on your behavior, you essentially... Um, generate these assets, right? So I paid for my parking, I ate this type of food, I posted this on social media, blah, 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 blah. And then based on all of that, you have these outcomes, rewards, um, and essentially the gamification of, of society, right? So yeah. let, let, let's come back to that in a minute. Um, a couple of foundational things again, um, and I think this is all segueing into one another, which is great, is what is the internet of things? How would you explain that? Yeah. So we're sort of at tiptoeing tip, tip into this next phase of the internet. Um, and they call it web 3.0 or um, uh, the spatial web. And so in this, the internet actually comes out of the devices, like out of a screen-based device, which we're used to interacting with, whether that's on a laptop or on a smartphone or on you know a wearable technology like a apple watch or something like that and it, it leaves the screen and it actually these um small very small sensors um which are part of this they create this internet of things network go out into the world both like in your house and potentially in your body and then also in the world and they're all like connected like this web system hmm. and so they've gotten to the point i mean if you look up like you know, I remember when I was first doing this education stuff and I stumbled across like DARPA's neural dust, you know, when they're talking about like neural dust and brain, you know, floating it into your brain. And I'm thinking, is this real? I know, like, it's like sci-fi craziness. Not, like you don't need a FOIA request, right? You're just Google DARPA neural dust. And, it, you know, and this is like three or four years ago. And I'm thinking, oh, wow. So now they're talking about in sensors in paint, right? Everything is smart. It's the smart, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. sensors in pavement, sensors um, in street lamps, like in Philadelphia, our first smart things were these really stupid big belly trash cans, which mm. seems like kind of an odd thing, like to have a smart trash can, but evidently it was supposed to report back, like I'm full, come get me. So it would be very efficient for the trash, you know, the, the, the collection. Um, but I don't think Philly ever actually plugged that part in, Okay. but so they, they create this apparatus in which, um, I sort of frame it. It's almost like we're living in an augmented reality video game. And, mm. and, and right now, probably the key Internet of Things sensor that people would imagine would be their smartphone. That's their sort of their yeah. minding tracking device. Yeah. yeah. So um, which is, you know, I, I just want to want to side sidestep for a minute here, um, because I think what a lot of people are going to start to ask themselves now as we get further into this conversation, you know, the example that you used is a smart trash can. Right. Right. Um, but we might also um, be reporting back or sensing good data, right? So a lot of these things in terms of the way they're framed, the language that's being used, et cetera, 
it all looks like it's amazing, right? I mean, this, these are things that we should strive for. Um, we want to track and measure all of these data points so that we can have a better world, right? We can have a more sustainable future. We can have the perfect human being with the perfect health, et cetera. And when you start getting into things like World Economic Forum, Forum language, when you start getting into politically correct language, woke language, um, and that sort of thing, you know, that's something I've also touched on briefly on the show. Um, that is the exact same language that is being used here for everything that we're talking about, right? For, for um, Internet of Things, data tracking, et cetera. So I don't know if you want to um, share any thoughts, sh- thoughts with us on, on, on that, um, because it ties in a lot with what we're talking about right now. Yeah, well, um, so all of the... So on the one hand, I will say the the Internet of Things runs on these next generation telecommunication systems. So we have the 5G technology, which is incredibly intensive because they don't radiate very well. So you have to have them like every 15 Everywhere, yeah. You know, I have them on either end of my block right now. Um, and they won't do the research to actually unpack what the health implications are for all of natural life, not just people, but like invertebrates. I mean, there's indications that the microwaves are, you know, the, you know, baking the exoskeletons of the pollinators, like all sorts of really dark things, but no one will look into that because the internet of bodies, the internet of things will run on these telecom things. So no one is allowed to question what the long-term implications are because this, this transformation into a digital world is, is so strongly coming with all of these interests. Um, So we, when we say that it's sustainable, um, it's how they frame the discussion. So we won't talk about the health implications of the technologies, mm. both the small cell technology. We know there's 6G coming, which is robot to robot communication. Um, we're not going to talk about where the minerals come from for all these sensors. Huh. We're not going to talk about the e-waste. We're not yeah. going to talk yeah. about the child miners in Congo or the countries that we like, you know, advanced coups on their governments. So we're not going to talk about the land defenders in Latin America who are trying to protect their land from the mining interests. And I know for Canada, that's a huge, like, I didn't fully appreciate the extent to which Canadian interests were involved in global mining enterprises. Yeah, you know? big time, big time. So that's yeah. a huge, huge thing, right? And it's a colonial project. It's a cl- so we're, we're going to say it's about sustainability. And yeah, all of these key elements that are really central to the conversation are now off the table. We're not going to talk about removing... Um, you know, indigenous communities from land so that we can protect them, right? Um, so, and, and I would say when I came into this, I was understanding that it was all tied to the sustainable development goals. Yeah. Which again, we're trained to believe like the UN, what could possibly be wrong? UNICEF, like, I mean, they're the their problem, they're a problem. But what essentially the U- United Nations has, has melded with the World Economic Forum with the largest... Um, and most powerful interests in the world, many of which are defense interests and debt finance interests. And, and pharmaceutical and interests. Pharmaceutical and chemicals, yeah. Yeah. right? They're things that are not good for life. And then I would say two thirds of the 17 goals are about managing the poor. They're about managing people in poverty. Um, and then there's a third that are about water and air and sustainable, but it's, it's about managing the poor in smart cities, moving people off of the land into cities, which, you know, And again, most, if you look at the narrative around the Green New Deal and climate justice, it's largely been hijacked by corporate interests. And that's Mm -hmm. something that, um, you know, Corey Morningstar, who is based in Canada and Wrong Kind of Green and Clive Spash are are all very, very good at the environmental piece. And I brought in the human piece and the poverty piece. Um, 
So the question is, if we have a green climate justice movement that isn't talking about militarism, right? Yeah. Like, isn't talking about war, it kind of becomes like, well, if we all just use paper straws, it would be fine. And I'm like, actually not. Like, we have to interrogate global supply chains. You know, when we're talking about petrochemical industries and biotech and all of these, you know, the blockchain is used for supply chain tracking. Like, there are many aspects to this that we actually have to reimagine how we live in the world and what our relationship is to one another and um, the impacts of the global north on the global south and and all of these larger questions. Um, the plan is through the sustainable development goals to make target vulnerable communities, particularly a lot of this is going through humanitarian aid, to be responsible for fixing the problem that they didn't actually create. Hmm. And in behaving properly according to set um, behaviors that are determined by global corporate interests, um, that they will run these new social impact markets and create new forms of revenue um, under the guise of um, you know, humanitarianism, which is wrong. It's actually totally an outright bald faced lie, but no one's willing to actually dig into the structure and then link it to the history of domination and colonization and all of these yeah. things that we've been doing forever. Yeah. I mean, it's so it seems to me just to kind of pull all that together, it seems to me like we're on on the front end, the front end marketing looks amazing, right? I mean, it's like, oh my gosh, we're saving the planet. We're everyone's going to be changing their diet, so their diet is better. So we'll talk about that in a little bit as well. So we're changing the diet, we're changing the the way we grow food, we're changing all of the stuff, and it's all going to be amazing. But on the back end of it all, we're not seeing the more nefarious um, agendas, if you will, that are driving all of these things. Um, so I think that's Local you know, food is going to be a cargo container of microgreens in the Walmart parking lot like yeah, literally yeah. That and I, I mean obviously uh, a show here on holistic health you know there's a few things we're going to focus on today and um, food is one of them you know because uh, so we'll, we'll get there in a second yeah. you mentioned something here um uh i guess let's just talk about transhumanism for a minute because before we get into some of the nitty-gritty here um how would you explain transhumanism to to people out there yeah, it's crazy that we even have to talk about this. I, know. I mean, hey, when I it's crazy started, that we have to talk about a lot of stuff we're going to talk about today. But you know what? We have to have I these know, conversations. We like, have to have these actually, conversations. And you know, and I want to say, um, you know, that when we look back to the history of like industrial engineering, electrical engineering, like there's a lot of things that they've had their eyes on for some time that they have not yet accomplished. Mm -hmm. So I just want to frame for your audience that the things I'm talking about are things that are advanced by very powerful interests. But it doesn't mean that it's all predestined that it will all happen or happen in the time yeah. frame that they identify. So I don't want to be just fatalist about this. I think some people imagine that I'm, I'm I'm not, but I think we actually have to look at it and reckon with it. We can't just, you know, look the other way and pretend that it'll all be fine, that it will probably not happen because I think those of us who can look at it do have to look at it. So yeah. um, what I when I got into the education space, what I realized was their goal was interoperable data systems um, and collecting all sorts of information on children, both their cognitive information, their mental health information, all of this stuff in one electronic record. And then what I realized with over the past year and a half is that really all of that interoperable data that's coming through the internet of things, through the internet of bodies with the 5G uh, hanging on your blockchain identity that they're going to set up for you is that they're, they aim to make digital twins. Okay. So, so if you imagine that um, 
this is an economic, the underpinnings of this are about power and economics. And the capitalist framing requires growth. Like you can't continue to have capitalism unless you have growth. Right. And so then the question becomes in a world of finite resources and incredible concentrations of wealth and power, how does growth continue to happen if the masses become dispossessed and have debt and cannot grow the economy through normal consumer culture that we've had for a century or more, mm. at least, you know, in the global North, what does that look like? What does growth look like then? And also we're hitting up against the limits of the world. Like, I mean, I, I, I'm not someone who says that we're not harming the planet. Like clearly there is gr- incredible harm being done. Absolutely, yeah. It is the nature of how we address that harm and the, pe- the, the, the strategies and, and the, the, that is what I question, right? So, so we've got these issues, poor people, um, a harmed environment, less and less resources, and yet a, an imperative to grow. And so my conjecture, you know, and, you know, I'm happy to hear other people's ideas about it, but that, that actually the plan is to build a parallel universe that is virtual, and that is where the growth will continue to happen. And not that that will involve no material resources, because clearly there will still be energy requirements and the data centers and, and the e-way, mm-hmm. all of the things we've talked about, but it will be different. So, you know, you can consume many more digital items if you live as an avatar, a cartoon avatar in a digital universe. And maybe you can actually be multiple avatar characters and all of those can be mined for data and managed as a growth enterprise for this new imagining of capital in a video game world, which is fundamentally military. Most people are not necessarily aware that the, um, the simulation, that these augmented virtual reality worlds, the ga- gaming worlds come out of military research and development, largely with Disney, yeah. right? The army research lab and Disney create, you know, synthetic people. And that's, so that is my sense is that is inverting and it's going in so that they can continue this growth in a way without having to fundamentally change this sort of warlike uh, toxic behavior that we've, we've been pursuing for so long. Hmm. Um, so, yeah. So transhumanism is both two things on the one hand it is becoming this avatar is becoming a digital version of yourself. And that's a transhumanist element. The other element is, is that, you know, the Elon Musk's of the world, you know, he's fronting for many other interests. I mean, um, if you look at Hanson Robotics and Ben Gertzel, um, this idea of creating um, cyborg, you know, uh, where the human merges with the machine. Right. And whether that, and, you know, clearly we've already got that to a certain extent. People have pacemakers, people have, you know, prosthetics, people have these other things, but really taking this to a new level and to the extent that it may not even be visible that some of that um, cybernetic element, the, the electrical engineering control systems may come through nanotechnology. Right. And that is something that has been going on for 20 years with uh, really, I mean, if you if you work in those worlds, I mean, it's clear. <laughs> I mean, the academic papers, the research journals, the conferences, if you care to go looking for it, it is all laid out. What, it's all there, what, yeah. It, but it's not in the general public awareness that that is happening. Mm-hmm. And so they're trying to figure out how do we use um, electrical engineering systems, nanorobotic systems, not just to cure cancer, not just to like help people who have um, neurological problems, but like at a population level, um, because a lot of what is coming is actually built on a history of eugenics. Yeah. And so if, if we imagine that the future is 
one where those in power prefer us to live as an avatar in my sense is what does eugenics look like, right? It isn't strong, healthy people. It is sort of people who have all sorts of frailties and chronic illness to be managed who would prefer to spend their consciousness inhabiting a virtual body than their actual body. And so this transhumanism, it takes on these two pieces. One is um, through environmental toxicity or population level bioengineering to remake people as cybernetic creatures and then two, to harvest your data such that you actually are creating a parallel avatar of yourself in a virtual world. Yeah. Well, and I think that, um, you know, when you when you do think of nanoparticle technology, you know, nanorobotics and stuff like that, you know, uh, go and look it up on the internet. I mean, we have nano dust, you know, nano dust is like smaller than a grain of rice. Um, yeah. So this technology exists. And of course, you know, how do you get it into your body? Well, you could breathe it in through the environment. It could be administered through an injection. You know, so a lot of people are talking about this, the whole microchipping and Bill Gates and whatever else, which on the surface sounds completely insane. I mean, it sounds like a dark sci-fi movie of some kind. But I think that when you actually boil it down and you do look at it honestly with an open mind, it's not that far-fetched. You know, we, we have the technology to be able to do this. And then, again, if we have these nanorobotics inside of us and that interfaces with the 5G, with the Internet of Things, the Internet of Bodies, now all of a sudden we've got this two-way well, one-way communication. I'm not sure if it's two-way, um, but essentially the harvesting of data, as you said. So, so it's biosensors. Yeah, I would encourage yeah. people to just like look up graphene biosensors. You know, that's yeah. and it's very difficult because people say, "Well, show it to me." And I mean, you could show them all the papers, but I don't have an electron microscope. Like, I, I, I can't yeah, yeah, even. Yeah. Like yeah. In that way, having this sort of public health ongoing crisis that is based in something that you can't actually deal with unless you have expertise in electron microscopy is um it's very it's very sneaky right because it's only the people who have access to these such technologies who can be the authorities right because you regular people don't have access to those technologies to present an alternate opinion or those who do are silenced so um it's quite brilliant how they've laid it out and i would just say if people have questions there's something called um, the Japan Science and Technology Agency, which is the government of Japan, um, you know, and SoftBank, which is the world's largest AI and robotics innovation fund finance is in Japan and upon telegraph and telephone, which is doing digital twinning and 6G is in Japan. Like they've said their moonshot project goal one is that by 2050, we will live without the need of a physical body and mind in time and space. Crazy. So they're already conjecturing these. I mean, you can just look up the Japan Science and Technology Agency Moonshot Project Goal 1. There are quite a few papers on it. You should look up the Internet of Bio Nano Things, Ian Akildias at Georgia Tech, and just look at what they're doing. Because at this point, no one is reining in the scientists, which are all like coming really from this militarized background mm -hmm. to say, just because you can do it, should you, given the current wealth and power imbalances in the world, like, should we trust you that, you're, you're in, that, you're, that your intentions are good or that we want to live a life in this way? Like, yeah. and, and, then, and if you did, well, you should leave room for the rest of us to not have to live that way. But most of what's happening with the nanoparticulates is, is going to be happening through geoengineering. So it's not like you can carve out a small part of the world and say like off limits, keep your, I mean, I know in Rhode Island, I actually have a friend who's working on um, legislation at the state level to fine 
um, you know, nanoparticulates, you know, coming in the air over the state of Rhode Island, which would have a huge repercussion because it's a little state and it will like bump up against a bunch of other states. But yeah, yeah no one's even like very few people even know to talk about that or raise those concerns. So and and obviously, I mean, look, this is a this is a health and wellness podcast. So I'm sure that on, you know, just like I'll put it bluntly, um, we're all trying to live as natural a life as possible. We're trying to eat organic food. We're trying to, you know, do the best we can in the world um, with the best of intentions, look after our children, our families, etc. Um, so what we're talking about here is a complete 180, where again, on the surface, we might look at some of these things and say, it would be good to track my blood sugar and have an incentive to get better. But what we're not looking at is the back end of it all. And, and I think that segues into my next question. Um, you know, a lot of people will ask, what's the point? You, you know, we hear about contact tracing and we hear about tracking and you'll get, of course, the detractors, which will just simply say, well, they're already tracking you through your phone. You know, I mean, what's what's the big deal here? Um, and, and I think that what people need to understand is what is the ultimate purpose of of tracking all of this data and what are they intending to do with all of our data? You know, and, and that's where you kind of bring in the hedge fund managers and the Goldman Sachs of the world and whatever. So maybe you can speak to that a little bit to just help our audience understand what the whole point is of collecting and, and using all of this data. Yeah. Well, so I would say my realization over the past three or four months has really been, I think the end game is the transhumanism part. Like I think, I think, in some ways, this idea of the matrix really isn't that far off. And Sophia Smallstrom has, has done a lot of work around piezoelectric human energy harvest. And like maybe some of this is about us powering the planetary computer that because these people who are running this game have more money than they could ever need or spend. Yeah. yeah. And so I think on the one hand, it is about further concentrating wealth and power. Um but it's also something bigger. It is, I think, these people want to be imagine themselves to be gods, you know, and, mm -hmm. and, and I don't know what sort of derangement happens that would lead someone to feel that, that they could be con in control of not just human life, but all of natural life on the planet down to the microbiome. But I think that is sort of this... Um, idea that stems again I, I just link it back to this long legacy of domination that, that yeah, Stephen yeah. talks about but so in the meantime so this is where I started out before the past year was that okay um, a core element that pe most people were not talking about were the, was the internet of things which we've talked about and tracking people in these smart environments because Philadelphia is a smart city to fuel um, the next version um, of speculative financial markets essentially to frame human beings as the next debt instruments. And so if we look at the timeline of the last global economic crash um, that was around housing and real estate, in you know, the 12, 13 years since that time, uh, the wealth has only become more concentrated. Mm -hmm. And the reason that happened was that there were these vast pools of money that had to be put somewhere because the other element of capitalism is it has to circulate. Capital has to, it has to stay in motion or the entire like Ponzi scheme will fall apart. And that's why even after the last crash, they said, everybody go out and keep spending money, right? Because yeah. if everybody else stopped, the whole machine would fall apart and the wheels fall off. So, um, so now we're at a point where many people never recovered you know, their housing stability, the gig economy, um, globalization continues and, you know, the heroin epidemics, like there are many things. And so like, what is the next big thing? Right? What is the next big short? Well, we, we have even more capital. Where do we put it? And so what has been built up is essentially framing human beings as debt instruments. 
and that is a that is has been enabled through a combination of factors. Um, one of which is the blockchain technology systems that will track you and you be used to predictively profile your your behaviors. And you know, MIT is a key. Um, uh, Massachusetts Institute of Technology in Boston is is key in this, and they've actually built a back end on um, for blockchain called Enigma Protocol that allows them to query on encrypted data. So it's sold as private, um, and I think that that's what they want all of us to to embrace their solution as a privacy solution. But they don't realize that the back end, even if it's private, they can still use this data to. Um, run these impact markets. So that means that you'll still never get a real doctor. You'll still never have a real teacher. You know, robots are gonna be taking care of your elderly parents because it all has to run through the blockchain. Um, so even if you have it private, it's still a sucky situation. Um, so they needed the, the, the digital identity, they need the spatial web tracking and they need the predictive profiling. And then the other, the last bit of this is something that actually dates back to the mid 1990s and it's a premise called outcomes-based government contracts, which sounds great. And um, because on the one hand, like I live in a city, my city has been run by Democrats for forever. It's still really, really super corrupt and really, really poor. And so it's not so much a partisan issue because all of the sides are on, the, are in on this, you know, globally, all, it's all power is in on this. And they, they give you different brands to pit you against each other. But mm -hmm. the people in power know that this is the game. And so they'll say, well, if we're going to do, um, we don't have much money because the rich don't pay many taxes and the poor don't have any money, um, but we'll, the governments will pay for public services, whether that's education, healthcare, housing, food assistance, if it works. And this is something that was advanced by Michael Bloomberg, former um, uh, mayor of New York City, uh, ambassador to the UN, uh, you know, ambassador to the World Health Organization. He's going to run the global police state. And he's like, well, we'll pay if it works. And he's trained people through Harvard Kennedy School all over North America, Europe and India on this what works government. And that all runs on data analytics. So that actually started in the late 90s with Arthur Rolnick, who is a, um, an economist at the Minneapolis Federal Reserve. So this is all tied with the central banking systems. And so part of this is it, it's... Um, you as a debt commodity, and it's almost like people who are familiar with the sovereignty movement, this idea of the straw man, like yeah. betting on, it's like they've just brought the straw man out and said, here's your digital twin, right? Like we're going to start betting on your digital twin and predictably profiling your social credit system. Um, and it's almost pre-crime. So they're, hmm. they're mostly betting on children because in this thing, it's like, I'm sorry, it's, it's a bit hard to explain. So you're framed as a debt instrument. You're tied to your digital identity. Now this digital identity is also connected to electronic government, which I know Canada is very central in advancing both digital ID and e-government now. You are one of the, the nine or 10 now digital nations, the pioneers in digital government, okay? Mm -hmm. Once you are set as an e-citizen in relation to, to the state, you then start to, it's like the technocracy. What have we spent on you? How much money have we put into you by the government? And what, what is your output? What is your economic return? Only it's not going to be the government. It's going to be private investors. And they will be investing okay. through these pay for success deals, which will be securitized. And then they'll, they'll decide um, the return on investments based on your behaviors. And if you're going along and that behavior will be tracked in the spatial web with the sensor network, with your phone, with your Fitbit, with your biosensor. And that's how they will track their return on their investment in you as a digital citizen. 
So would, would you say that a lot of this has to do, I mean, what I'm hearing is like there's, and, and I'll, I'll kind of tie this together in, in a minute, there's like the social credit scoring um, slash compliance side of things, right? So right. we want to make sure, and we, of course, we've heard this a lot here, a lot of people, I mean, we're still in lockdown right now at time of recording, it just got extended again, it just keeps getting extended, state of emergency keeps getting extended, regardless of cases, regardless of anything else, right? Um, but we also have a biometric ID here in Ontario that is being piloted now. It's coming out. Um, they've got QR codes that are happening in, in Quebec now. Um, so the, the digitization of all of these things are happening right now. It's not something that's happening in the future, right? But I wanted to um, uh, just to kind of pull some things together for our audience, because I think a real world example would probably help. Right. So let, let's just say you've got and let, we'll talk about children for a minute, because I know that's kind of how you entered into this whole um, line of research. So let's say you have a kid and that kid gets put onto the blockchain from the time they're born. Right. So just like a birth certificate. But now we're, we're measuring all of these different data points, right? So as they grow up, um, we might be measuring their mental health. We might be measuring their social skills. We might be measuring their weight, what they eat, their poop. We can measure all of this stuff, right? And, and I just, b- before I carry on, I, I just want people to understand here um, that, again, this stuff is happening right now. So if we're talking about vaccine passports, right, vaccine passports are a big deal now. There's a lot of countries that are talking about them. And of course, on the surface, people are just saying, well, it's just to show that you have COVID-19 vaccine status and people go, well, you know, um, you need a vaccine to go to Africa. You need to be vaccinated against malaria or you know, typhoid or whatever the case may be, you need these things anyway. So what's the big deal? Why is a passport such a big deal, right? And and I think if you look at it on the surface, it seems pretty benign, right? Like, okay, so if I don't want to get a vaccine, well, then it's a problem, right? But for those people who want to get vaccines, you get your vaccine, you get your passport and off you go and life goes back to normal, air quotes. Well, I just want to update people and I'm going to read this verbatim here because the UK and the NHS, um, they actually have a vaccine passport. They've got an app, right? That um, initially it said, oh, well, we're just going to use it for external travel, right? So inter intercountry travel. And now they're talking about it. Well, we're probably going to use this internally as well. And the recent update on their app, basically, they've now included special category data. Okay, so COVID-19 vaccine status is one thing. But the special category data includes physical and mental health. It includes information on family and relatives. It includes lifestyle and social behavior, ethnicity, genetic information, criminal convictions or alleged criminal behavior, and essentially access to all of your medical data since, since you were born. This is happening right now. This is forget about the blockchain, forget about anything else. This is happening right now. So the reason why I bring all of this up is because as we're starting to track all of this data, to your point, we now can um, have outcomes, right? Yeah. So we can now say, okay, Johnny's, he's a good student. Um, you know, he's doing this, he's doing that. We can reward people, and the reward is maybe not going to be monetary. The reward might be privileges, right? So that's social credit. Yeah. So that's social credit scoring. You know, if you're a good boy, you behave, you do your thing, then you get a seat at the VIP table, whereas someone else doesn't even get to enter the restaurant, right? Am I, am I on the right track with, with this line of thinking here for now? Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, it is that engineering system. And then it's also, 
the predicting. So like these investors will make bets on okay. it. Um, and the, 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 what I want to point out is that what happened with the housing market crash was that the people who really made out were the people who shorted the market. Yeah. <laughs> right? There's the, the film, The Big Short, and that it's actually a very useful um, film to watch to understand that if you replace toddlers, people in addiction, uh, unhoused people with the mortgages bundled as tranches of investment, that's what it is coming to. And so on the one hand, someone might be betting that you behave. And then on the other hand, some, there might be other people betting that you don't behave. Wow. And then in this mix, you have a smart environment with factors that change up that might make it more or less likely that you um, accomplish the goal that someone has been given to you, right? Because a lot of this will be you, you making your own way. It will be um, someone assigns you a set of tasks that you have to do. And then the smart environment make it, may make it smooth your way to get those tasks done or may throw up obstacles in every single step. And then increasingly, wow. eventually, that may be tied in with artificial intelligence. So it's not even people, right? You know, like have terrible luck with the bus. You know, it, just even before all of this, like my family, they come like five minutes, the bus comes and we go. If I'm waiting by myself, it's always 25 minute wait for the bus. So imagine <laughs> if you've got a portfolio and someone like the satellite eye in the sky is looking down and going, you know, John Doe down there, you know, they've got a pretty big bet. He's not making it to his workforce placement today, <laughs> you know, and then the bus gets detoured. So, I mean, it's kind of silly to think about, but it like, is, if, yeah. we're the, if we're turning the planet, if the goal of these people is to turn the planet into a machine, do we really think that these people who would be sociopathic enough to imagine themselves to be gods would necessarily run the, pl the, the planetary computer to make everyone happy? They're not running the planetary. It's a military project. The military project is not running the planetary computer to make everyone happy and well-adjusted and, and have their needs met. It's just not. Well, so, because, uh, because I think something else I've heard you say, and I've read is, is these outcomes, you know, were essentially, um, what's the, what's the correct way to, to frame this? You, you have to, um, you, you can't have people achieve the best outcomes because that's not actually the most useful, right? We want to have them constantly in a state of poverty. We want them in a constant deficit state trying mm -hmm. to get out essentially. And then that's, that's, a, that's better a for the... That, and you that, never get out. As soon as you get to the end line, it's kind of like being in the line at Disney and you're like, wait, and you queue through and you think you're almost to the ride and then you get in the next room and there's like a whole other set of... I mean, that's, that's what it is because if they actually solve the problems there would be no market for their investment and the whole thing would fall apart. Well, and, and I, th I think it's useful for people to also look at this in the context of what is going on now with the so-called pandemic, right? You know, again, we're in Ontario here and, and I would say the whole of Canada. I mean, people are kind of are, are appalled at what is happening in Canada right now. And you have to wonder to yourself based on, if you look at the case numbers, if you look at hospitalization rates, blah, 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 all of this stuff. I mean, we are not by any stretch of the imagination. We are not another Brazil. We are not a country where people are dropping dead in the street, where we've seen mass fatalities or anything like that. You know, relatively speaking, we still have an IFR of, you know, whatever it is, 0.26% um, and so on and so on. So the question always has to be then like, if you are constantly shuttering businesses, if you're pushing people further into poverty, if you're not giving them a means to, to make an income for themselves. And now they've already approved universal basic income, right? 
So, See, so that's the thing. Like, so that's the starter money for the right. game. I mean, I sort of frame this as if you're like, imagine again, if you're in like a gamer, you're in a virtual world and then you interact some with like these non-playable characters, you know, or like that they're run by algorithms and you have agency in the game. Like you're making your way through the game on your quest. It's almost like over time, you're becoming a non-playable character. Like you're losing any agency over your own decisions and you're being put on pathways in ways that you can't just pursue your own future. You actually have to just do what the algorithm says to do or you'll get shut down. And then if you do obey all the things then you can level up to the next task and maybe acquire some new digital items. But like really this idea is to roboticize masses of, of people. So yeah. like, how does this work? If everyone had nothing, they would rebel. They would be in the streets, right? If everyone was was like literally being starved to death, they would they would find common cause and do something about it. But mm-hmm. the UBI is is I think sort of the the way to let off a little steam, right? We'll we'll string people along. I don't know what it is in Canada here. There, two thousand two thousand a month. We yeah we get a thousand. You can't live on thousand dollars U.S. dollars a month. No. You can't. No, like, same here. So my, yeah. my sense is, is that ultimately the goal will be that you will sell your data and that your data will be private, but you'll build a brand and then you can, and we've even seen that with BitClout and some of these ideas of people betting on people's personalities and social scoring. Like you could say, it'll be the new plasma bank, right? Well, we'll, we'll dribble you along a little money so you don't die. But if you want any extra, you know, if your kid breaks their arm or whatever, you're going to have to sell off some data to, you know, to pay this out. And, and part of the UBI is it's being framed as like no strings attached here. We'll just give you money, however you want to use it. And that's, that's not, that's disingenuous because the yeah. plan is not for it to be that it will be blockchain and it will be, have all sorts of strings attached. And then ultimately it will be outsourced to private investors. And that's where the libertarians come in. Cause I try mm-hmm. to like bring the people together and say libertarians like you guys might think you're going to be great with your blockchain and all you know the idaho freedom foundation get the government out of your life and live on blockchain well i'm saying because the faith communities are part of a lot of this i'm like if you're a faith community you're investing in people are you going to really track people's social credit scoring and put religion on blockchain and track people's behavior in order for them to survive is that charitable is that a charitable practice because that's how it's going to go. So on the one hand, the libertarian people think it's going to be great. And I'm like, well, what, what, what really are your ethics? Because it's going to be the Peter Thiels of the world making the investments. It's not like you're going to have your own little small town with your own local crypto economy. It's not going to be that, hmm. you know, and, unless you fight for it. But they don't even know that what the end game is. So they can't even fight for it. And on the other hand, people are embracing on the left saying, well, the government should do this for us. Which, yeah, people have needs met, but this is being manufactured on purpose so people lose right. all well, So both I, sides are not getting it. Yeah, well, I, I, th- I, think, I think that's the key point is it is being manufactured. Do you know, like, like, like we could just open everything up right now and let people carry on with their lives, but why are we not? You know, and then of they course you double- the virtual world, for goodness sakes, and sit in their closet and code it. Yeah. And, and the other thing I just, the last thing I want to say on UBI that a lot of people are not getting is again, when everything is blockchain, you know, now they're talking about digital currencies, right? So forget about crypto, like Bitcoin and Ethereum and whatever. Now it's like, well, the Canadian dollar becomes digitized all of a sudden. The US dollar is digitized and there's no more paper money or anything. Well, guess what? Every single thing is then tracked and traced and there's no more, you know, 
hey, here's 10 bucks to the kid to cut my grass on a Saturday morning. That's yeah. not going to happen anymore. There's no selling off my old stroller that I had for my kid for a hundred bucks. Like that's not going to happen anymore because everything is tracked and traced. The second thing I'll say with UBI that a lot of people don't understand is it, there's a high likelihood that as this become digit, becomes digitized, it's not you, you're not going to be able to accrue any wealth. So you you know on on the first of the month you get your two thousand dollars. There you go. Do whatever you need with it. You can't survive on it anyway. Um, but at the end of the month, if you didn't spend a penny, it gets wiped clean and you get another two thousand dollars. Right. So there's never going to be that ability to acquire and accumulate any, any wealth. And something I've said on the show before is, you know, in Canada, particularly, we have racked up so much debt over the, the course of the last 15 months. Justin Trudeau has literally racked up more debt than all of the other prime ministers ever in the history of Canada combined, which is, which is astounding. And, and if you think about how that debt has to be paid back, if there's no production and there's no economic outputs, there's no manufacturing of goods, there's no jobs. Well, there's seizure of assets is one. So, you know, here's your two grand a month, but you can't pay your mortgage. We'll own your house. You live in your house. And same thing with your car and everything else. And the second um, way to do that is obviously, as you're saying, is going to be through the acquisition of your, your data right? So um, biological data, which again, uh, you know, relative to what I was saying in the UK um, and the NHS uh, vaccine passports, um, you know, yeah. Maybe like he's that. looking to get into human mining. I mean, that's really, I think you think of the, his, the extension of it. Canada is such a big mining economy, right? They're just mining a different resource. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Um, I want to, I want to shift. Yeah. I want to shift gears a little bit. Um, and I want to talk to you about um, health and um, that side of things, right? So actual human health, because a lot of the stuff now, you know, we talk about things like genomics, right? So nutrigenomics and genomics has become like a real hot button topic these days. Um, you know, as someone who practices, and this is maybe where you and I might um, uh, butt heads a little bit, I don't know. Um, you know, we talk a lot about personalized care, you know, and, and, and personalized um, health programs, personalized protocols. I don't, you know, I've, I've worked with nutrigenomics and I've worked with genomic testing in, in a clinical setting. Um, obviously, I'm doing it as one person based on your symptoms, your lifestyle, everything else with the intention of improving your health, right? That's what my goal is, obviously. But um, so when you look at it through that lens, I think a lot of people on the surface are going to go, well, you know, we can have personalized supplements. I can run a DNA test and have a personalized diet and all of this cool stuff, right? I can map out my own human microbiome and all of these things sound amazing, right? Because if I had that information in my hand and that information was, was for me only, and I was doing something with that information for my personal health, I don't see that as necessarily a bad thing. But the way that you've been speaking about it makes it look very, very different. So perhaps you can kind of um, explain to us what is going on behind the scenes with all of that. Well, um, so United Nations Sustainable Development Goal number three is health. Um, and, you know, the one thing I want to sort of frame within like the health and wellness community, and I, I've said this like with Sergi, you know, we've had some conversations is that like the wellness communities have to, I think, also grapple with, especially if people are familiar with like the terrain framing, right? Is that like you can do all the healthy behaviors you want, but if you live in a fully toxic environment, that's yeah. only going to get you so far. And so I think that like we have to, especially as I think people become more and more emotional about what's happening and, and upset and frustrated that we, that 
those of us who are looking at the picture more holistically don't turn into the thing that we're right. Fighting, right. You know, cause I think there is like a judgmental aspect to this yep. and it's easy to feed into. We're all human, right? Like that's the beauty. We're human. We're not robots, but we have to be aware of this tendency of policing people's health behaviors. Mm-hmm. Because I would say as someone who um, lives in a poor city, the issues of, you know, environmental toxicity, uh, food deserts, uh, economic, environmental stress, epigenetic trauma, they're all huge, right? And so, yeah. um, you know, I work in this public garden and I could easily see um, the health protocols people being put on for access to Medicaid, right? Um, you know, public, you know, subsidized healthcare. Yeah, well, yeah. you know, you need to do X, Y, and Z things to sh- prove to us that you are taking charge of your wellness, right? Like you need to walk three days a week and check in with the QR code on your phone. You need to wear smart shoes. You need to, we're going to give you this neat DNA nudge band. Those are, you know, already in place in England. Um, you know, so when you use your food assistance, digital currency, you're only buying things we say that you're allowed to buy, but now we know with like GMO food modification, what if what you're allowed to buy is something that's a GMO product that's supposed to be aligned to your DNA. Um, all of these things are layered in, but then you could live across from the refineries, across from the scrapyard. You could be working three jobs. You could have had your gas turned off. And so all of those elements, like that's what we say, they're not interested in actually fixing the problem because if they did, the market and the data aggregation would go away. So, um, so those are sort of my things about the personalized medicine is to, um, you know, what is the power dynamic? And like, what is our relation to our food and our environment and our health practice? Because some of it has to have a structural remedy around um, economic justice that people actually have meaningful work. They can support their family that give them some satisfaction, mental satisfaction in their life, um, that they have access to fresh food and stable housing in which to prepare and consume it that they have like reasonable support for mental health, that they can have healthy family relationships and heal from past trauma. Like there's all of that, but that's not what the system is set up to do. So I think the idea that you can just have like a DNA encodement and then follow a certain protocol um, is like the flip side of big pharma in some ways, if Mm. we're not dealing with as a society, these larger structural problems, then I think the wellness community is just going to be a different strand of this, problem like and i'm not saying any of it's easy right like how do we get out of global supply chains how do we get out of a toxic uh, you know environmental stress you know i i'm not like just blowing it off but we do have to we have to get there that's where i think if we take an easy way and just say oh well i'm just going to map my microbiome and take a handy dandy nutraceutical that's like a shortcut that doesn't actually feal the trauma i think Hmm. Yeah, and I, I find that's it's an interesting perspective that you have, and and I can totally see what you're talking about. I think it's also relevant and important to point out um, who's backing all of this stuff, right? Um, you know, who who's interested in your data, and we'll talk perhaps about food in a minute as well. Um, I found out that Dupont was in the microbiome space, right? There you go. Like, yeah. <laughs> there you go. Right. So clearly, they know it's important. Like, do we think that Dupont is going to engineer your microbiome to your benefit? Like. I yeah. Well, yeah, again, take a look at the history of all of these companies. You know, you've got your pharmaceutical companies that are backing a lot of the stuff. 
um, you've got your chemical companies, you've got the um, the people making GMO foods, you know, your Monsanto's, Bayer's, like the, these companies, these are all major backers. And again, just go onto the World Economic Forum website and go and have a look at who their main business partners are and all of the above, you know, the Johnson & Johnson, Pfizer, Moderna, all of these companies are right there, including many of the government branches, you know, so your um, Health Canada, uh, I know the Quebec, one of the Quebec governments, you know, so the, this that's where it all is. And again, um, I would say that anytime you think that these private companies and governments collude, if you think that the outcomes are going to be good and that they have our interests at heart, um, I think you need to go back and have a look at that and uh, reevaluate because it's, we're, we're it's always, hard. I mean, yeah. it's hard for us to like think that our government doesn't care about us or yeah. that like are that powerful people may want us to only live as cartoon characters. Like, I mean, it, it seems almost unimaginable and that's a lot of grief. Like, I think yeah. there's been a lot of manufacturer trauma over this past year that like, how do we actually reconcile with knowing this so we can move forward? And I will say too, like chronic illness, all of the preventative care that was, was framed leading up to, um, you know, in the early stages of the pandemic, you know, if you look at the media framing, which is not to say that there weren't disproportionate impacts in certain communities, the question is, how did that happen, right? Like, what is exactly what's going on there? And I don't think that that story has fully been told. Um, but chronic illness, um, diabetes, heart disease, asthma, those are all being set up as social impact markets for this pay for success finance for wearable technologies for the internet of bodies and will disproportionately affect people who have already held a lot of harm. And especially within the diabetes space, you know, there's research to look at dirty energy and electronics as contributing to pre-diabetic conditions. So that's exactly mm -hmm. one of those things. If you're living, being bathed in EMF radiation and they tell you to put on a smart shirt and walk it off, like what's actually going on there, right? And, and when you look and, and realize that it's global finance, it's Sir Ronald Cohen, it's social finance, it's these Swedish bankers that are backing all of this with Stanford Business School, um, mm. Yeah, it doesn't add up. I mean, it adds up once you understand the power dynamic, but they're not interested in getting you well. Yeah, yeah. Which is all, again, very, very crazy, um, crazy stuff. You, you spoke about something called um, social prescribing. Is that, is that what we're talking about here? Yeah, a little bit. So um, again, it's, it's so nice, right? It's like holistic care. We care about you. You know, we want, we want to, we care about your whole lifestyle. <laughs> but really it means like we want to manage your whole lifestyle. And, and um, uh, so social prescribing is actually a lot of this uh, social impact bonds and pay for success finance came out of the UK. It's a colonial okay. project. Um, Sir Ronald Cohen, you, who is the father of British venture capital, he's Harvard MBA. He got money from the lottery fund and unclaimed bank accounts to, to have seed money to start this new program in social impact finance and po poverty management, really. Um, so chronic illness was a, was a cost offset, incarceration was a cost offset, mental health. In fact, the whole mental health division of the NHS was scaled against this Richard Layers equation around depression and the cost of economic cost of depression. Everything has an economic cost. Um, so social prescribing is a way of like saying, well, I will write you a prescription for a non-traditional thing, like not a pharmaceutical. I'll write you a prescription. Your doctor might say, well, or not even your doctor, maybe just a care provider. Um, you know, a navigator, they call them like social work navigators. Um, volunteering, you seem a little depressed, maybe if you volunteered a couple days a week, you know, or a couple times a month, you, 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 you know, feel better, or well, let me prescribe you some nature. That's a big one nature prescribing, 
Wow. Well, surely we all know that being out in nature is lovely. I mean, if you can, you know, have time yeah. and you can yeah. access. Yeah, great. Um, nature bathing. Actually, we had someone come to my garden and they were talking about nature bathing. And I was asking them about this. I'm like, do you know about social prescribing? Do you know about data collection in, in, in these environments? Um, if the, the social prescribing happens in augmented reality and it is in the panopticon, does it count or not count, huh, right? Weird. Who does it count for? Because so we're seeing something called nature RX, I think. Yeah, and then also produce RX, which is food prescriptions, prescribing healthy food. Um, but the Nature RX program that was being um, partnered with Niantic. So Niantic developed Pokemon Go, um, the augmented reality overlay of the world with virtual information, you know, virtualized information. Niantic was funded by InQtel, which is the venture capital arm of the CIA. Wow. Okay. okay. So the Knight Foundation is partnered with Niantic to do all sorts of fun things in your city, right? To tell stories and to interact with QR codes and to unlock information and to unlock healthy lifestyles like this Park RX program where you could walk with a dog. You could come to a park and you could walk around with a doctor and you could talk about healthcare. But all of that is being woven into these digital profiles, just like you had spoken about at the NHS app, right? And then what happens when the digital profiles also become linked to your mental health? Because mm -hmm. part of um, if what they're doing is aiming to create an almost unimaginable parallel universe, the people who might resist that need to be framed not as dissidents, but as mentally unstable. Right. Right. And so, and, and also if you're mentally unstable, they can take you in as wards of the state or they could administer medical procedures to you if you have this label attached. So if wow. all of a sudden they're tracking all of your behaviors and potential like criminalized behavior in an augmented reality world run back to finance by the CIA. Um, yeah. Like if you start to say, uh, you know, I prefer not to live in the internet of bio nano things. Like I'd really prefer not to have to have an avatar and work in a haptic suit. Hmm. And they'll say, well, this is the new normal. You know, if you if you're not down with this program and you haven't had all of your you know procedures up to date, maybe we think maybe there's something wrong with you. Maybe we should have a closer look. Let's admit you and see how you know how that goes. Wow! And it's it's really intense, especially yeah. if you're thinking yeah. that this is not just adults, but this is also children. Which is just, I mean, it's 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 a lot to wrap your head around. I mean, just to even think like that. But again, I always bring it back to what is going on right now. And I think that that that's why we're talking today on the show is, <laughs> you know, to try and like actually, is there a way that we can see, um, you know, a few years into the future, a couple of years into the future? Don't let the CIA into your park. Yeah. But like, that's what I'm trying to do. Let's, I mean, let's not let the CIA run our park system. Yeah. Yeah. And do, do you, th I mean, uh, just to kind of expand the conversation a little bit, um, obviously this is happening around the world, but do you feel, I mean, the US CIA, obviously, you know, that, that, that's one oh, thing. I, yeah. um, you've said Canada as well. We've said the UK. Do you feel like what's going to happen in maybe countries that are not as advanced, if you will, um, maybe like African countries or countries that are maybe a little bit more off the radar? Um, are those countries just going to be left behind, do you think? Or are they also going to be woven into this digital reality? Um, well, I, I would encourage people if they have the time. Um, I did a really long presentation interview with my friend Zakia on 
what's happening with Cardano um, and the, the largest global digital identity pilot in Ethiopia. Okay. okay. And they're, they're putting children, students and teachers on blockchain. So it goes into great detail about Cardano's having its eyes on Africa. Um, it will look differently there um, because, again, they sell the telecom infrastructure is different. Yeah. But they're coming up with other systems that are more satellite based and also like last mile systems where you might have a centralized Internet access with remote devices that collect information in the field and then that are ported back to a, to a, a centralized location and the data is uploaded from there. So it won't be as seamless, but I think in many respects, the goal is to code this virtual world, which hasn't yet been built, right? I keep talking about the augmented reality and the virtual world building and, and you know, it's in the process of being built and there's bits and pieces, but that in the ways in which, um, you know, certain cohorts were meant to build the railroads or build the skyscrapers or like the next thing to be built as this virtual world building. And I think um, global capital will never plan to pay fair wages on that. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. so they, they want to suppress the wages. And so that will be done through un unfree labor, whether that's children, uh, dispossessed people, refugees, uh, prisoners, all of those people will be prime targets of doing very piecework. It's not high level coding work. It's like data hygiene, labeling photos, doing that work to code this thing into reality. Huh. Um, so UNICEF, which is again, part of the United Nations, uh, education is goal number four. It's all uh, ICT, individual communication technology. So like phone based and VR headset based. UNICEF is doing pilots with virtual reality education all over Africa, in India and Chile. No way, and wow. Essentially they've said like kids in Nigeria, they're never getting a school. That we're, we, there is no money for school for kids in Nigeria or teachers, uh, but we're just going to leapfrog them right in with a virtual reality headset. And one of the programs said that um, it was originally set up to be gestural coding. So it was post-literacy, essentially. They would just like huh. not even teach. It's really this history of slavery is just continuing and colonization. So um, and the same with India. And then all of that will be framed as a human capital improvement market. They'll say, look, we're, we're upskilling, you know, the children of African India into this new economy. And um, isn't this isn't this wonderful? And, 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 you know, the Goldman Sachs and UBS Bank and, you know, whatever, they'll, they'll make bank on uh, essentially mm. programming these children through the virtual reality headsets while they themselves are programming the virtual world. And it's it's verticals. It's all about verticals. So yeah. Um, they're working on all of us in different ways. And it's it's quite overwhelming if you look at it. UNICEF's Innovation Fund, which is back in the VR education programs. Um, you know, their main funder is Disney. Huh. Wow. It's so, so bizarre, uh, right? When you start like like teasing out the webs and stuff like that. And um, I just remind me again, while, while we're talking about that, you've done a lot of like mind mapping um, type things, right? So like actually yeah. lay, laying out like who's connected to who and how deep does it all go? And um, now I understand that a lot of that stuff was was removed. Am I, am I correct? It was. Um, yeah. You know, well, they don't like it when it starts fitting together. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so the program was called littlesys.org. It's like, you know, mapping big brother, little sis. But the thing is, it's like funded by Open Society, George Soros, and okay. the AFT, you know, the teachers. Better. And they really only wanted to map certain kinds of power. They didn't want to actually map once they got into impact investing and the spatial mm. web and other things. So um, 
they deleted all of my maps. A lot of them were saved on the Wayback Machine. And so I still have access to them. And intermittently I've been, you know, because it's crowdsourced uh, information. So like I have four years worth of data in there. Um, yeah, yeah finding ways of pulling, but that just shows that the control systems of the tech sector is they can just wipe things at will, right? If they want yep. to. Yeah. And I mean, we've all seen that. That's happened to me. Um, I, it's like, you know, email CRM gets hacked and you're down for like two months and, you know, you get completely shadow banned on social media. Um, you know, it's happened to so many people that we know. You All of a sudden your channel disappears on YouTube, like it's just gone, you know, um, et cetera, et cetera. It's actually to the point where some people um, that I know, they've actually, their website's been taken down by service providers. So by GoDaddy, by, you know, that's like going way beyond just your Googles and what have you, like they're they're just wiping you out at the root level, you know, which is, which is crazy. And the thing is like, I would really encourage people who, um, an important book for framing the context of cloud computing for me and the internet was a, uh, Yasha Levine wrote a book called Surveillance Valley. That was the military history of the internet, which really, I mean, and I think we, we generally understand it to be that, but the cloud isn't as much as it it has lured us in and we can do a lot of, you know, enticing things with it. It's a militarized space. It is a militarized zone and we're not really in control of it. And, and even within the blockchain space, you know, most of the people who are talking about blockchain or other, like, I think they're still not dealing with the spatial web and the role that blockchain plays in creating this augmented virtualized world. That's also a military world. So, um, yeah, yeah, it's, 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 it's worthwhile reading just to understand it, it within a military context. Okay, cool. Um, so just before we wrap up, um, you know, do, do you see us um, is, and I don't know if this is the correct way to ask this question, but is there a way out of this or are we just, um, we're just going in and we're going to have to accept it. I mean, a lot of these things that we've spoken about, some of them are happening right now. Some of them are well underway in terms of the planning stages. Um, I think the, you know, perhaps a full digitized virtual reality space might be a few years down the line. You know, that might be 2030, 2050, some, somewhere around there, um, which obviously doesn't bode well for those of us with young children. Um, but, but, you know, right now, like I feel like we're just at this, I feel like this is a spiritual war in a sense. Um, like that's, I've said that a lot and uh, I feel like this is really about like good versus evil in a sense um, in the spiritual context. And I find that, you know, as I speak more about these types of things on the show and speak to people, um, people are just kind of buckling, you know, they're, they're just getting to that point where it's like, this is absolutely insane. And what am I going to do about it, right? So, you know, people are panicking now about vaccine passports, mandatory vaccines, and that is happening right now. But again, what we've painted is the picture looking 10, 20, 30 years into the future. What do you, is there any recourse or like, what are your, what are your thoughts on that? <clears throat> well, I, I agree. I think I'd rather frame it as an engagement, not a war, because I yeah. think I don't want to feed yeah. into the military. And I, I kind of like my word like sacred and profane and there's a balance, right? Like things are profoundly of balance. And that's not to say that we can ever eliminate all of this, but the balance is, is thrown off. And I feel like it is this point of reckoning on this Mm -hmm. planet. Right. And I think part of what's very hard is someone who comes more from previously, like the left background is that the materialism, like the materialist perspective 
and I think that the training to really um, sort of shun people of a more spiritual practice, like mm. in the favor of the materialist aspect has really hobbled the, the left in terms of addressing this, because I think it's, again, it's not any single faith practice. And I do have people who jump on some of my threads and they have only like their preferred one and everyone else who isn't doing that is wrong. And I'm like, no, I think it is. However you connect with like the larger force of the universe, the creator, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, you, your what, because it's going to take everything. This is a global program. It's not in, in, you know, I come at things not from the Patriot framing. The na- I, I don't think you fight globalization with nationalism, like not once you understand geofencing and haptic robotics, like it's global solidarity. You actually, it's like a global peace movement yeah. against artificial intelligence, a, a, a global movement that affirms the beauty and complexity of natural life. Like that is what, that is what we're engaged in is, is a defense of natural life, not just for those living, but those not yet born and all the other beings that aren't even people, right? Is this, and that is, there are very few people, especially in coming from a place being grounded in a sacred spiritual quality, like whatever, whatever that looks like for you and being respectful of other people and and the beauty of all of how life represents around the world, right? And, and I think that is something people can get on board with, right? Nobody wants to be dominated. Nobody wants to be told what to do. Most people want to be able, like, I, I fully believe, like, most people aren't fundamentally greedy, horrible people. I think no. they, they want their family to be taken care of. They want to live a, a, a nice quality of life that has that is satisfying. And they realize they're caught in something that is fundamentally out of control and harmful, right? And they don't know how to back out of it. So I'm like, if, we can access individually something beyond just the limitations of the material world, right? Like if, if, if someone said, okay, you have to fight Goldman Sachs um, on their terms or DARPA or the CIA, like we don't have any of those tools to in that space. We need to step out of their game as they've defined it and create our other space um, mm. to affirm what we feel is, is ju- just and right in the path towards healing and recon- like redemption, right? Because there's a lot of stuff that, needs to be fixed, needs to be healed, um, past wrongs. And as much as like the woke culture has been turned into a weapon in this and, and, and has made it such that people can't see the bigger picture in many respects, that's not to dismiss those harms, right? But harm has been across many different sectors. So how do we, I think it's a beauty in affirming this peace movement towards natural life. Like to me, that's a winner. Um, yeah. And I've, you know, people follow me. I've been asking for dandelions. Um, I've been taking all over Manhattan, which is where a lot of this is based. Um, the hedge funds and, you know, the technology and the common past project on Roosevelt Island. We're going to gather for a celebration of life on Roosevelt Island on the solstice. And we're just nice. going to be like beautiful together and, and bring that space. So um, I, I don't think it's hopeless. I don't think it's supposed to end that way, but I think it is a test. And then the test is, do we, are we fearful and do we run away? Are we selfish? And we're just trying to look out for the smaller thing. Are we willing to, we have the steadfastness to tap into that bigger sacred space and, and look with a clear eye and refuse and then build something else. Yeah. And that's the reckoning, I think. You know, I, I, I love that. And um, thank you so much for that. Cause that's um, yeah, it, it, it's, I think it gives people some hope at least. But, um, you know, I did a podcast a while ago, actually over a year ago now. Um, and you probably don't know this about me. I don't, I don't speak about it all that often, but, um, I essentially lived with first nations people here in Canada for about six years. 
Um, so I've done a lot of inner work. I've done, I've traveled around and lived with indigenous people. Um, my entry point into getting into natural medicine was actually more through the spiritual domain, if you will. So I've done a lot of that sort of stuff, right? And that sort of work. And I had my teacher, um, she was, uh, she's, you know, she's still alive. She's still with us. She's doing great. Um, she's leader of the Mohawks um, here in uh, in Canada, right? Her husband sits in the longhouse. She's a very well-respected, you know, very well-respected elder. And so I did a lot of work with her and her sort of like core team um, when I was younger. And um, so I got her on the podcast when the pandemic first hit. And I said to her, like, what's your take? You know, like, like explain wh- what do we think is going on here? And the overarching sort of theme on that podcast was, was that what this whole situation is highlighting is that we are living in a very, it's highlighting the unsustainability of everything. Um, whether you want to look at finances, whether you want to look at the environment, social inequities, like whatever, whichever one you want to pick, right? This is bringing all of that to the surface for us to examine. But what you and I are talking about here is now we kind of, we have this fork in the road where do we want to fix the root causes of the problem? Obviously, that's what we want to do, but how do we do it? And what we've just painted out over the last hour and a half in this podcast is that the globalists are essentially using this as their framing, yeah. right? But, but, but in actual fact, they're not fixing any of the root problems at all. Right. Um, you know, we didn't even talk about food on the, on the podcast here, but again, all the people that are backing the eat Lancet project and this planetary diet, you know, the, the, the diet for planetary and human health, blah, blah, blah. It's all the people doing the genetic modification, making the chemicals, the terminator seeds, you know, blah, blah, blah. It's all so, so, um, I love that you're saying that. And I think we're hundred percent on the same page that, you know, from a spiritual standpoint, I think that we're all being asked to look inwards into ourselves. And um, I think something you also said, you know, the whole running away side of things, you know, which is, which is a very interesting um, phenomenon. I watched a video the other day, which is, you know, when is it time to leave? And a guy basically painting all of these milestones and benchmarks, you know, so when is the time to get the hell out of your country before it turns into a dictatorship? But here we find ourselves in the situation where this is a global phenomenon. There isn't anywhere to go. And so we have to, what are we going to do? Right. And uh, I've sat (laughs) with that. I don't mean to like the, I think the idea of building community of reconnecting like practice with, being on land, like all of those are beautiful things. I don't, and I don't mean to dismiss that, but if that um, exclusively, I don't think exclusively that that is a long-term solution, not that the, those practices aren't part of coming out the other side. Yeah. Well, I, I think the other, the other thing that we need to recognize is that, you know, we, and I've said this for many years, is we have the technology to, to really move us forward into utopia like we have the technology like a lot of the technology that we've spoken about can actually be used for very very good things you know if you just think about a farmer who has sensors in his soil um you know kind of like what i was saying with the nutrigenomics and stuff how i pull the invertebrates you can't so so, so anyway the 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 point is if they were to able if they were able somehow to dial in so that their topsoil was regenerating and the microbial life was nice and diverse and they were growing super healthy nutritious plants and that that was the end goal and everyone was ultra healthy super nutritious blah blah those are good things you know that's not a bad thing but again that's not really how the, the stuff is being used here. 
Um, you know, and, and I think that's where we have to kind of look at it all and go, which path are we, are we being a good yeah. relative? I mean, I think that's, and again, I'm not trying to co-op and, and, and that's the thing that's so hard in this because I feel like communities were targeted <clears throat> for yeah. these bad outcomes, I think in a very systematic way to make it impossible to have this conversation. But I yeah. think that, that, um, yeah, we, we need a better way to relate to, to the planet. Um, outside of global supply chains yeah and to each other and to yeah. each other and to the other beings yeah and what is our responsibility that's the thing like once i found out about the nanotech these people they don't they, they admit that they don't even know what the long-term consequences are and yet they, they have no problem throwing it into the water cycle right and and yeah. it's um it's sort of profound but at the same time once you you know, Tom Cowan is so lovely. We actually connected early on in this in the fall. And nice. you know, someone was telling me about um, like the, the Briar Rose story, you know, the, the being locked in the castle, you know, in the perpetual sleep and the princes coming with the hedge, hedges around the castle and always, you know, all the ones getting the, the, the knights would all get cut up, you know, trying to get into the, to save the princess. And, you know, after, and then finally people gave up. And then one day another, you know, Knight shows up and they're like, don't do it. And it never turns out well. They never come back. It's not, you know, and, and he just said, like, I'm not afraid. He said, I'm not afraid. And then, the, mm-hmm. and then the hedge opened up, you know, the thorny hedge opened up. And so I think part of what we're asked, being asked to do is to, um, to try to advance from a place of love and to not be afraid. As yeah. much as it is scary to actually, if we sink into the fear, that's exactly where they want us because I fit on that. And I have to say from just walking this walk from just being a mom doing education work that nobody was really paying attention to this past year of, of risking putting, putting out, putting out my address, putting out where I am, like telling what I think in a time that's highly polarized. It's been a gift of the people who found me, who's for whom my message resonates with them, who shared their life stories and their experiences and their resources. And, you know, send me dandelion jelly and honey and <laughs> things that we're trying to use in ceremony. And I'm, you know, I'm making it all up. I don't claim to be any expert. And I'm not telling that anyone should automatically believe me or trust me. Be skeptical. Find your own way. Hopefully some of this material, if it's new to you, you can look it up and incorporate it into your analysis. I have one analysis because it's based on my path so far. But the reciprocity, even in these virtual worlds over the past year has been quite the gift. And so I could have a much more boring life um, had this all not happened, but my life is actually a lot richer for it happening, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's all about perspective, right? Perspective and perception. Yeah. Well, thanks so much. I think it's a great note to end on. Um, And I, I had a great time sitting down and talking with you. I think that we didn't even cover certain things because there's so much more to talk about with all this stuff. Um, no, it's not. Yeah. And it's not bad. I mean, I, I would encourage people to go and um, check out your website. So for those of you listening to this or watching, um, you can just ch- check out the show notes below. Um, I'll speak with you, Alison, as well, just offline. If there's any other resources that you think are really, really important for people to check out, we'll just stack a bunch of them in the show notes and people can go and um, check them out um, as, as they need to. So um, any final thing you want to say before I let you go? And uh, where can people find you if they want to connect with you? Where's um, the best place? Sure. So my blog is called wrenchinthegears.com, wrench like the tool. Um, I have a YouTube channel, which is just Allison McDowell YouTube. And, um, you know, I will just say, I think, I think the way out is, is human, human being human and, and love and care. You know, I, I mm-hmm. think, I think when we get off balance, 
um, that's the grounding place. And um, uh, yeah, it's, I don't think it's supposed to end the way they think it's going to end. I think as my friend Cliff says, we already won out in the Valley of love. It's already out there. We might have to walk through the zombie apocalypse to get there, but (laughs) the Valley of love, there's like a really good potluck and we just have to do the work. um, And we have to trust that, that, that um, all these crazy CIA augmented reality things are, are going to fall apart in the end, but we have to be prepared to actually look at it and not just look the other way. Yeah. And bingo, I think that is the most important thing. And that's why we're having this conversation. That's why I talk about this stuff is we cannot just bypass it. We cannot stick our head in the sand and hope it disappears on its own. It's not going to work like that. So awareness and um, paying attention to what's going on around us, um, educating ourselves into what is happening, and then making decisions based on that. Um, Ultimately, we empower ourselves as individuals as family units, as communities, and uh, again, getting rid of the fear and operating from love. Hey, I can get on board with that. All good. All right. Global so thanks. Peace. <laughs> yeah. So thanks. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Addison. Really enjoyed right. our, our talk today. Okay. All right. Thanks, Brett. Awesome.